Hello and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work. I'm your host, Rami Khouri, from the American University of Beirut. We interview every week a scholar and faculty member at AUB and the work they're doing, why they chose their topic, what they're discovering, and what it means for the rest of us. I'm very pleased to have this week uh, as our guest, Dr. Omar Sidri, who recently got his PhD from the University of Toronto. He's an affiliated scholar at the Aysan Faris Institute at AUB, where he's done work for two, three years. And uh, he has done his uh, PhD thesis on the ethnography of checkpoints in Baghdad, uh, a pretty fascinating topic, which he will tell us about. Omar, thank you for being with us, and congratulations on your doctorate. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your well wishes, Rami. It's good to be with you. You bet. I've followed your work over the last few years. We've had discussions, and, and I've uh, been fascinated by some of the things that you're looking at and what you've discovered. So tell us first, why did you choose this topic? Why should the ethnography of checkpoints in one city in the Arab world have any significance to anybody? So part of what drove me to look at this topic was essentially the ubiquity of uh, of these uh, security checkpoints across uh, Iraq's capital city, which of course uh, began to uh, come about and be established uh, in the wake of the U.S.-led invasion and occupation of the country in 2003. Uh, of course, later these uh, uh, checkpoints morphed uh, and were ultimately um, uh, taken over by Iraqi security forces and have been maintained in some form um, and to greater and lesser extent for the last uh, two decades or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and their ubiquity, uh, you know, I, I think has had a profound effect on on everyday life in the city. So a great deal of, uh, of ink has been spilled covering, researching Iraq for the better part of two decades, of course, longer. Um, and much of that research uh, is compelling and, and deals with uh, important topics, but I think a great deal of it also neglects, neglects uh, the ways in which everyday life um, tra- you know, transpires and is lived by residents in the city. And so my, my hope with this project was to consider um, how mobility is interrupted, uh, facilitated, obstructed, and not um, for, for ordinary you know, so to speak, ordinary residents, everyday um, every, you know, population living their everyday lives. And I think uh, this ubiquity, the omnipresence of these checkpoints has had a profound effect. And I was trying to understand um, how, you know, what those effects look like. So give us some insights into what are the actual impacts? How does everyday life get impacted by these many checkpoints? So part of the question I was asking was, uh, was trying to, I was trying to make sense of the, the paradox that was, you know, the, the, lament, the popular lamentations about the ubiquity and utility of these checkpoints. So, uh, you know, the hundreds of checkpoints dot this, the, the streetscapes of Baghdad and Hat for, for a very long time. And yet uh, the majority of people, you know, they're kind of virtually unanimous public opinion is that these checkpoints, quote unquote, do not do anything, do not work, do not uh, do much to effect security, to bring about everyday security. Um, and they point, you know, oftentimes during the worst of the of the urban violence uh, in the mid to late 2000s, and, and you know even later, uh, they would point to kind of the ubiquity of car bombs and other kinds of violence, both spectacular and mundane. 
uh, as proof that these checkpoints don't don't uh, carry out their intended purpose. So the question I was asking was, if if they don't uh, engender security, what do these checkpoints do? What are they doing for uh, the construction of the state? So ultimately, that what I was asking was the ways in which these checkpoints are implicated in bringing about uh, and uh, affecting the state as such, or as you know, this entity that we call the state. And, and I think the main argument that I'm kind of making and trying to, try to unpack is the ways in which even through what some call failure, other call, uh, others call ineffectiveness of these checkpoints, the state is still effective. The state is still constructed, even through, um, even through the supposed failure of these, of these sites of security. When you say the state is still constructed, explain that. You mean the the state is still strong and functioning? Because when you look at Iraq today, people have some questions about how stable is it, how much have they been able to deal with corruption. There's still a big uprising trying to get rid of the whole government. So how do you define uh, what you just said about the state is still there and constructed? So part of the, you know, not to not to dwell too long on the kind of theoretical contribution of the of the work, but um, you know, a great deal of, of political science literature treats the state as an already existing entity, as an axiomatic entity. Right. And part of what I'm uh, I'm trying to do with this is to build on on interventions from from Timothy Mitchell, thirty years ago, a scholar at Columbia and and others who built on his work to consider the state not so much as an already existing entity, but an effect of mechanisms of power that make the state appear as it does. And so what I do is look at the checkpoint through um, three uh, mechanisms of power. Those are the security practices of personnel, uh, police officers and soldiers at, at checkpoints, uh, the interactions that these security personnel have with residents passing through checkpoints, and then finally, the, what we call the, the affective attachments or the affects that people, what people feel when they both go through checkpoints and also, you know, uh, around the, the affects that reverberate uh-huh. and vibrate out, out from the checkpoint. These I look at as what I call mechanisms or what have been called in other places, mechanisms of power that help to make the state uh, look like it does, make the state feel and exist as it uh, as such, as an entity, and so that's what we mean when we say the, you know, the state effects so much more so than the state as such, and that's kind okay. of what uh, what I'm trying to do is trouble some of that kind of the trouble some of that literature and political science. Right. Well, that's fascinating because uh, one of the things that uh, I've experienced throughout my adult life all across the Arab world is uh, everywhere you see uh, men with guns. Uh, asking you for your ID, where are you going, who are you, where are you coming from, what are you trying to do, you know, and most of them are reasonably legitimate, they're government checkpoints, whatever, but you also find checkpoints all around the houses of politicians, you find checkpoints put up by informal neighborhood militias, uh, so this is a this is an issue that really goes way beyond Iraq, uh, but as you said, it, it is a symbol of the practice of power is that correct that's right i think that's i think that's right i think in 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 places like uh, lebanon that you're you're far more familiar with than i am i think um and 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 iraq and other places in the region and outside the region you have the you know you have these kind of competing uh, centers of power as uh, 
uh, as it were, that uh, that make the reference to the state and the non-state actually kind of, um, I think, um, more complicated. I mean, less, I think, analytically valuable to talk about the state and the non-state, but rather these these nodes of power and these um, that, that are kind of located in particular places uh, that work within uh, what could be called state institutions, but then also work without them outside of that right. uh, and and it's that interaction between different kinds of uh, different kinds of power different centers of authority uh, that I'm trying to look at and the checkpoint I think is a, is a helpful way to look at it when you talk about for example uh, you know in Lebanon you see uh, particular forms of checkpoints happen you know when you're traveling for example to the south or to the right. north you see uh, checkpoints that are set up by um, by, by the military. Right. But of course, within Beirut, for example, you have, uh, yeah, politicians' homes that are barricaded, surrounded, and, and of course, uh, secured by public uh, security institutions. But also, right. the question there becomes, are they, who are they really working for? Are they working for the quote-unquote state as such, or are they working for the people who, who are occupying these positions of power? And I would probably argue it's, it's the latter far more than the former. Right. There, there's an incident that uh, I often use in, in my classes teaching. In one of the articles that the late, great Anthony Shadid wrote about Iraq, um, he was describing a, a train ride. And he, the, he opened the article by in a scene where there was an Iraqi soldier standing there at the, begin, at the opening, at the entrance to the railroad station in Baghdad. And, and his job was to stop people and make sure they didn't have bombs or whatever, or guns. Or, and he described the scene where the car stops and the soldier, the window opens, the soldier hears on the car cassette an Um Kaltum song. And the soldier immediately says to the driver, didn't ask, where are you going? What do you want? Can I check your trunk? He said, can you please turn up the radio? I just want to hear it one more time. And he wanted to hear the the soldier wanted to hear the Um Kaltun song, and he and he did, and then the guy and he said, "Go ahead," without doing anything about security. I mean, that to me was an unbelievable example of uh, of uh, the kind of uh, flexibility of these institutions. So I would, you know, it's a great example. It's a beautiful article, of course, a beautiful writer uh, who left us far too far too early, yes. far too soon. Um, I would say two things to this. One, what's ironic about that that small vignette is that the when you're approaching checkpoints in Baghdad, there are a series of, I would say, uh, internalized, embodied movements yes. that one does that one has been one has learned to do over time right. through repetition. What uh, you know, opening your window. Uh, slightly, just enough to be able to speak to a, a soldier, police officer who may want to speak with you, but not all the way down because you have to be able to the the, the soldier has to be able to see whether or not your tind your your windows are tinted, right. whether they're legally allowed to be tinted. Right. Uh, you know, another one is if you're driving, you're you're approaching the checkpoint at nighttime, you turn off your headlights, of course, not to, not to blind the right. the uh, the personnel who are standing at the checkpoint. Uh, and one other one is to turn down your radio. Oh, right. it's it, this is this is kind of it, it's uh, and if you don't, you're you'll be admonished. Right. You know, these you should know by now. The, the behaviors that you should be uh, you should be doing when you're approaching this checkpoint and turning down the radio is certainly one of them. That's the kind of irony of that moment. But more broadly, 
um, I think that captures that incident and that reference to that incident and many others captures what I call, what I call in my own work the contingencies of these checkpoint interactions. And, and so far as you, you may have these, uh, uh, these spaces and these locations uh, set up and they may be intended to carry out a particular set of routines and practices, but at the same time, it, there is so much contingent, there's so much that depends on human action and human interaction, right. the ways in which uh, one looks, uh, the, the, the ways in which uh, it, uh, you interact or joke with a, a soldier, for example, right. I, have, I, I write a little bit about the ways in which humor plays out at the checkpoint. Right. And, and if you can be humorous, if you can be uh, joking with these, these personnel, it, it works both to kind of uh, disarm, as it were, no pun intended, the, the the soldier who is interacting, who's interacting with you, but also allows the soldier to get a sense of who they're speaking with. So this is why, and and what whether or not this person actually should should and can be deemed a, a quote unquote threat. So this is when we talk about the kind of contingencies that occur in these interactions at checkpoints. I think the vignette that you give us is is a reminder of just how important uh, they can be for the ways in which uh, checkpoints. Uh, play out in, in everyday life. Have you seen an evolution in the way that checkpoints are actually used in, let's just say, Baghdad, which is what you've studied most over the years? Are they still being used today in the same way? They are being used. I, I would hesitate to say the same way. What I write in my own work um, that uh, I hope to you know, possibly publish one day is that there are there's an evolution of the ways in which checkpoints operate in, in the capital city. So you have the kind of introduction, not to say that checkpoints did not exist before the occupation, but of course, uh, of course, when the U.S. occupation, U.S.-led occupation began in 2003, you had U.S. military checkpoints that were set up very ad hoc um, and very kind of cobbled together through an array of materials and procedures that were not actually uniform. And if you look at U.S. military documents, the the there's a dissonance between the the kind of procedures that are on the books. And then the kind of reports and um, uh, and everyday conditions of these checkpoints in the early days of the occupation in 2003 and 2004. This, I think, shifts uh, through the uh, through 2005 and 2006 with uh, the kind of development of the civil war uh, within the city, if we could call it that. Uh, the events, right, or the, the sectarianism, there are many different phrases to be used for, the, for that time period mm-hmm. in which you had also the U.S. military and their infamous surge of U.S. troops that, uh, that were kind of blanketed the capital city and, and kind of reinforced uh, their, their own security checkpoints alongside Iraqi personnel. So you had a shift from the kind of occupation checkpoints to what I call the normalization of these checkpoints in the city, mm-hmm. uh, where they became a part of everyday life to the extent where you would approach uh, checkpoints and you would be asked a, a, a similar, a same set of questions. Where are you going? Where are you coming from? Do you have any weapons? So these, these questions and these procedures were normalized, I think, uh, in, the, in the mid to late 2000s. And then the kind of uh, third shift, I think, occurs later uh, with during the end of the you know, uh, U.S. occupation, at least at the time, towards the end of 2011, and then the full-blown taking over of these sites by the Iraqi forces, where they, these checkpoints, I think, were used to kind of organize the ways in which uh, the city uh, was lived and was was uh, securitized by the Iraqi military. And how this occurs is, in part at least, 
is between uh, the ways in which Baghdad was secured separately than the spaces outside of Baghdad. So you had this kind of inside-outside um, situation yes. where you had uh, they, security forces attempted to kind of secure the city from threats from without, and those were particularly from Daesh, right? And as you saw the rise of Daesh in 2012 and 2013, up, you know, until their, their full-blown kind of capturing of one-third of Iraqi territory in 2014, right. you actually saw, I think, these kind of spatial divisions between Baghdad and the and the, its, its, its hinterlands and the provinces outside of it. And checkpoints, I think, were very much a part of, of that process. So to answer your question perhaps a bit more directly, you had a shifting of, of what I call moments, uh, an evolution of different moments of these checkpoints. Mm -hmm. Not to say that there are distinct periods that you can kind of draw clear temporal lines, but rather a shift in and out of different kinds of uh, of, of checkpoints uh, that, you know, once you kind of exit out of one moment or one period, you can actually shift back into it, depending on security conditions that are driving the ways in which the military um, uh, and, and yeah, Iraqi forces deploy um, these 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 sites of security. If that if that if that answers your question a little bit. Yes, let me just tell our audience. If you just joined us, we're talking to uh, Dr. Omar Sirri, who is a affiliated scholar at the Islam Faris Institute at AUB, and has done uh, his recent uh, PhD fieldwork. Um, and dissertation on the ethnography of checkpoints in Baghdad and Iraq. Uh, Omar, the, um, the question, you say the checkpoints reflect power uh, in a way or related to power, and power in the Arab countries, as we've all experienced, is very related to not just political ideologies, but to ethnicity. And Baghdad, Iraq, is a place of intense ethnic and sectarian identities, um, so my question is, does the checkpoint system in a city like Baghdad, which has different ethnic, different sectarian identities, Sunnis and Shiites and some Kurds and uh, some others, uh, is it particular to Baghdad or is it similar to what you'll find in, in Basra or, or, or other uh, places? So my research is specifically on the nature of urban checkpoints within the capital city. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I have to speak to that directly mm -hmm. or specifically. And the ways in which uh, ethno-sectarian identities plays out specific, specifically acts and within checkpoints certainly played a role in, you know, a central role in the ways checkpoints were administered in the mid to late 2000s. Yes. This begins to shift with the shifting security conditions. So, for example, you would have uh, the checking of identity cards. And, of course, kind of, and it's become rather cliche, but you can kind of tell one's, one's identity, one's ethno-sectarian identity based on their name, based on the areas in which they live. Of course, it becomes more... Uh, very much more pronounced and and doable with the kind of ethnic cleansing that occurs right. uh, in in Baghdad in 2006 and 2007, which you know I should note is actually helped along and facilitated by the U.S. military checkpoints right. that actually helped to you know they claim secu you know, successfully secure the city, but at the same time helped to to cement uh, the ethnic cleansing of particular neighborhoods. Right. So when you had uh, people moving uh, from one area to the other between different areas within Baghdad, the, the questions of where are you going, where are you coming from, are very much about identity, who one is and why they're going to particular places, right. right? So the ways in which that plays out. 
At the same time, I think what gets, get, you know, does not get enough attention at all are the ways in which class plays out yes. at these checkpoints. And this is, I think, a, there's a kind of dearth of this, in part because of very kind of uh, primordialist uh, notions of how people live their lives in, in the Middle East. Of course, this persists, though a lot of this, uh, you know, work by, by scholars and journalists is, right. you know, has tried to discount, you know, has tried to kind of uh, deal with that and, and push back against some of that literature. But uh, the ways in which, for example, class plays out at checkpoints is very much... Uh, uh, a factor in who gets to pass through and who gets held up. Right. So, uh, you know, when I say, you know, I conducted an ethnography of, of checkpoints, part of this work was spending two months at two particular, two checkpoints on, on either side of the city. One was a police checkpoint and one was a military checkpoint. And I was able to see very much firsthand the ways in which uh, security practices are classed, uh, who, what the kinds of cars uh, that get stopped, the, the emphasis on taxi taxis, for example, particular kinds of taxis. But of course, the you know the the armored SUVs are are never stopped, right? Are usually given privilege right. privileged mobility. Yeah. And of course, this is you know of course what maps on top of on top of class are the you know and you ask these questions about power, you can't but speak about parastatal. Forces, right. also known as parasitic armed actors, you know, once known as militias, right. of course, in, in Baghdad. So the ways in which class plays out is also imbricated uh, in uh, or imbricated with uh, these parasitic armed actors who are able to exert their power uh, through these sites of what are ostensibly one could call state security uh, forces that are playing, you know, that are occupying these sites. And yet, they're helping along and facilitating the mobility of parasitical forces that, uh, you know, one might argue uh, in, a, in a prescriptive sense shouldn't exist, right? A lot of, uh, a lot of people argue right, this, right? right? So you can't, uh, when you ask a question about ethno-sectarian identities, sure, it, it certainly plays out and it, and, it be, and it demands us, you know, demands us looking at other forms of, of subjectivity, uh, which I think is a much more helpful term where we can look at class subjectivity uh, and other forms uh, of, uh, you know, that, that count for the different forms of power that operate at these sites. Right. We've uh, just about run out of time, Omar. Let me ask you one last question. What are you going to do next uh, after this work? What's your next project? Well, this, uh, you know, we'll see uh, whether this work uh, continues into, uh, into a book, mm-hmm. uh, into a book project, which I think... Um, is, is a, a very distinct possibility, but at the moment I'm also working on a project with a colleague, uh, Jose Ciro Martinez, who himself has his book coming out on the politics of bread in Jordan uh-huh. uh, with Stanford next year, uh-huh. which is exciting and fantastic and should uh, be looked out or should you should look out for. Uh-huh. And we are working on, uh, we've co- co-written an article on, on checkpoints in Baghdad and, and bakeries in Amman. And we're working on our second piece together uh, that looks at the ways in which uh, soldiers and bakers are both, uh, in different ways, of course, implicated um, in in affecting uh, the state through their kind of what we would call bureaucratic functions. As as uh, that you know, they're of course not traditional bureaucrats, soldiers and bakers, but but in fact can be looked at as such when it comes to um, creating and affecting uh, the state. And so that's uh, an exciting project that. Uh, that I'm working on with him. Wow. Well, we look forward to seeing the results. Uh, we've run out of time. My guest this week has been Dr. Omar Sidri, an affiliated scholar at the Hassan Fadis Institute at AUB. Uh, Omar, thank you for being with us and good luck with your work.
Thank you, Rami, and thank you again for you know uh, uh, being such a such a strong ally for me uh, at at IFI. You were you've always been great, and, and I'm I'm grateful for your support always. Well, it's a pleasure to work with people like you doing innovative and exciting research, which just makes us understand better the complexities of the Middle East, but we need to understand those complexities in order to build a better world for everybody. Thanks you to our audience uh, for being with us. I'm Rami Khoury, your host. Join me again next week at the same time for another episode of Professors at Work. Bye for now. <music>